0: Take your Bible and turn to Revelation chapter 2. Revelation chapter 2. Now, maybe I'm out of... Maybe I shouldn't say this, but I like these two chairs on the platform. First of all, because of my knees. I don't like to walk very much. But also... When I sit on the platform, I watch people as they come in. Now, if you had asked me a half an hour before I was to preach this morning what I was going to preach, I would have told you something entirely different. As I sat on the platform and as uh, I've been in it 62 years now, I get a pulse of what the message ought to be. And that's what happened this morning when I was sitting on the platform. All right, Revelation chapter 2. And I'd like for us to stand, please, for the reading of God's Word. Beginning with verse 1. Under the angel of the church at Ephesus write, These things saith he that holdeth the seven stars in his right hand, who walk in the, in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks? I know thy works and thy labor and thy patience, and how thou, thou canst not bear them which are evil, and has tried them which say they are apostles and were not, and has found them liars, and is born in his patient for my name's sake. Nevertheless, I have somewhat against thee, because thou hast left. Thy first love. Remember, therefore, from whence thou art fallen, and repent and do the first works, or else I will come unto thee quickly and will remove the candlestick out of its place, except thou repent. Thank you so much. You may be seated. The name Ephesus means desirable. Ephesus was a booming commercial center on the western side of Asia Minor. It had a large artificial harbor which could accommodate the biggest ships in the entire world. The Greeks came and they captured Ephesus and they dedicated the city to the goddess Diana. They built there the greatest temple in the world. At that time, one of the seven wonders of the world uh, to the goddess Diana. So it was a center of worship and adoration for the entire world. In John chapter ni- uh, Acts chapter 19, Paul came to Ephesus. He labored there for three years, but when he first came to Ephesus, he found a group of believers that were disciples of John the Baptist. And he said, have you received the Holy Spirit since you believed. And they said, the Holy Spirit, who's that? So John's baptism was not the fulfillment. He went on and preached to them that Jesus had died on the cross, he rose again, and there was Pentecost, the Holy Spirit was given to those who believed. And uh, the disciples of John the Baptist were made disciples of Jesus Christ. Well, uh, he labored for three years after he left. Timothy, we would call him an interim pastor. But after Timothy, uh, John was the pastor for 30 to 40 years. He was boiled in hot seething oil by the emperor Domitian, banished to the Isle of Patmos where he wrote the book of the Revelation. Now, I wanna speak to you tonight on the subject, the desirable church. And I want you to notice with me from our text four things about the desirable church. First of all, verse one, the direction of the church. Now, he writes to the angel. That is really the messenger or the pastor Now, it's interesting, he did not write to the deacons. He did not write to the trustees or the Sunday school teachers. He wrote to the deacon, uh, to the pastor. And the pastor is responsible for the direction of the church. Now, he is in the right hand of God. 21 times in the Bible, it says that Jesus is at the right hand of God. Five times in the book of Hebrews. Right hand, that's a place of authority. Now listen to what the Bible says, First Timothy 5 and verse 17. Let the elders that rule well be counted worthy of double honor. The word rule. Hebrews 13 and verse 7. Remember them, that have the rule over you. Hebrews 13 and verse 17, obey them that have the rule over you. Many years ago, after my wife and I were married, we were members of Emmanuel Baptist Church in Clarksburg, West Virginia. I was still wet behind the ears, just a young evangelist, aspiring an evangelist, And so we were faithful to our local church when we were home. One night when we were home, I got a call from the chairman of the deacons and he said, Brother Comfort, we'd like to come and talk to you tonight. And I said, well, sure, I'll be home all night, so come and talk to me. And when I hung up the phone, I thought, what in the world have I done that'll merit church discipline? And I had no idea why they had come to see me. And so they came in, we had a a little chit-chat, just a cordial talk. And all of a sudden they turned the conversation to my pastor, Don Matheny. And they started criticizing my pastor. So I listened for about 15 minutes And then they said, uh, Brother Comfort, what do you think? I said, gentlemen, you're not going to want to hear what I think. I said, when I joined Emmanuel Baptist Church, I submitted myself to the authority of my pastor, Don Matheny. And I said, I want you men to know that I will not entertain your criticizing my pastor And when you leave, I'm going to call him up and tell him everything you said about him. You see, the pastor is a place of authority. I have preached over 1,600 extended revival meetings through these 62 years. And I have been with several pastors who like the authority, but they don't want the responsibility. It's a place of responsibility. Uh, They are to protect. Uh, Hebrews 13 and verse 17, for they watch for your soul. Uh, Paul told the Ephesian church, after my departure, grievous wolves will enter in, not sparing the flock. So he warned them. And this church, ladies and gentlemen, was a church that... uh, Tried the apostles. They would not put up with false teaching. Why? Because they'd been taught properly. We've been taught properly. And it behooves us not to immediately jump into voting for somebody unless God directs us that that's the man who's going to take us to the next level. So it's a place of responsibility, he protects the flock. Uh, Brother Capel spoke this morning on John chapter 10 in Sunday school and he talked about a pastor who is a shepherd of the sheep, not a hireling. Now, I could get on a soapbox very easily, but I tell our preacher boys at Ambassador, if God's called you to pasture, stay home and tend the flock. Let the evangelists run all over the country. God didn't call the pastor to run all over the country and neglect the sheep. And uh, he said this morning that that man who doesn't take care of the sheep is not a shepherd, he is a hireling. And it bothers me that in some Christian colleges we have made superstars out of men who preach on Sunday they leave the church on Monday. They don't come back until Saturday. Hey, I had a preacher tell me that pastored in Shelby for 33 years and a tragic thing that he said. He said, you know, I've been a pastor of my church for 33 years in Shelby, but in 33 years, my people have never known a pastor. Why? Why? Preach on Sunday. Go off and preach everywhere around the country and neglect the flock. There has never been a time when the sheep need a shepherd as they do now. It's a place of uh, protection for the pasture and a place to feed the flock of God. Acts twenty twenty eight. Uh, Paul said, "Feed the flock of God, which is among you, taking the oversight." thereof. So it's a place of authority, it's a place of responsibility, and number three, it's a place of exaltation. What does God call the pastors? He calls them stars. D.L. Moody said, if God calls you to preach, don't stoop to being a king. And that's the truth, folks. The greatest thing in all the world is to be called of God to be God's man. Daniel 12 and verse three, and they that be wise shall shine as the brightness of the firmament, and they that turn many to righteousness as the stars forever and ever. My wife and I were members of a church in Anderson, Indiana, Grace Baptist Church. And one Sunday night, uh, the kids from college were home and Don Kant got up and said, I want all you kids from uh, Christian colleges to stand and we must have had close to 20, I would imagine. And uh, so he said, now, if you would like to give a testimony as to why you're studying for the ministry, he said, I want you to remain standing. So Jeff Luttrell said, Pastor, I'd like to say a word. And Don told me we were very close, Don Camp and I. And he said I thought that Jeff Luttrell was going to stand up and brag about his pastor and how his pastor had challenged him to go in the ministry. But Jeff didn't say that. You know, he said he said I'm in the studying for the ministry now because of my parents. He said, my parents love preachers. I've never heard them one time criticize the man of God, our pastor. They support preachers. And I thought if a preacher is such an important person, I want to be one of them. And he said, I'm a past- you know, studying to be a pastor because of my parents. Now listen to this. I told Brother Shoemaker about this letter I got from a young man Uh, He wrote me about four four or five years ago. He, He graduated from Pensacola. He's in evangelism now. His name is Chase Williams. Have any of you ever heard that name, Chase Williams? Well, God is really using him. But listen to what he said. Hey, Dr. Comfort, this is Chase Williams. I'm 18 years old. You don't know me, but you have greatly impacted my life. Around 40 years ago, you preached a message at Franklin Road Baptist Church about praying for your kids to be in the ministry. At the end of the sermon, you said to the congregation to stand up if they would commit to pray daily for their kids or their grandchildren to go into full-time Christian service. Well... My grandparents Stan and Mary Williams stood up and both and committed to pray every day for their kids to be in the ministry. Long story short, their son and daughter were both called to be in the ministry and are still in the ministry today. My aunt Melissa went to Bible College and married a guy named Bruce Barker. They have now been in the ministry for over 25 years. Uh, then uh, we have seen uh, during these 22 years that my grandparents made that commitment. Many of our uh, relatives go into full-time Christian service. I emailed you all this to say thanks But had you not preached what you did at Franklin Road about praying for your kids to be in the ministry, my grandparents most likely would not have committed to pray. And my life would probably be very different. Now, folks, uh, you know the stars of this world are very temporary. Years ago, I preached at uh, uh, Kansas City with Carl Uh, Carl Herbster. And uh, in that church was uh, two of the Kansas City Royals players. Uh, Infielder by the name of Jerry Terrell was an outstanding Christian. I remember playing golf with him and people would ask him, Jerry, what are you going to do Uh, are you going to sign another contract? He'd say, well, I'm praying about it and I just want to follow the leadership of the Lord. Well, Darrell Porter, who was the catcher, was traded to the Kansas City Royals and he asked that he could be the roommate with Jerry Terrell. He knew that Jerry Terrell was an outspoken Christian and Darrell Porter had been on drugs So eventually, being the roommate of Jerry Terrell, Jerry led him to Christ and he became an outstanding Christian. As a matter of fact, he was voted as the most valuable player the last time the Kansas City Royals won the World Series. I remember playing golf with Darrell Porter and he said, Brother Comfort, you know, athletes who are stars, it's very temporary. He said, uh, five years after you're retired, nobody's going to recognize you. He said, I was down at the Royal Stadium on Saturday, and the Royals were playing the Yankees. Don Mattingly was a first baseman for the Yankees. And uh, he said, I saw a flock of people just crowd around uh, Don Mattingly getting his autograph." And he was autographing one after another. He said, out of the corner of my eye, I saw Tom Seaver, been out of baseball five years, elected to the Hall of Fame, won 311 games, mostly for the New York Mets. He said he walked down the grandstands, Hall of Famer, and nobody recognized him. Nobody asked for his autograph. You see, they flicker for a while and then they're gone. I want to challenge you. Why don't you pray for your children or your grandchildren to be God's star? He holds him in his right hand. It's a place of authority, a place of responsibility, and a place of exaltation. So number one, we notice the direction of the church. Number two. Notice, please, the discernment of the church. In verse two, in verse three, it says they labored. That word means they worked to the point of physical exhaustion. Let me say no church is a great church because of one man. There has to be people in that church who will labor to the point of physical exhaustion. That's the same word that Jesus used in John chapter four and verse 38. He told his disciples, I sent you to reap whereon ye bestowed no labor. Other men labored and ye are entered into their labors. So he said, I sent you to work to the point of physical exhaustion, but you haven't even tried. E.C. Haskell was a dentist And a member of Highland Park Baptist Church in Chattanooga, Tennessee, he had a dentist office in town. And one night in a service like this, E.C. Haskell got under conviction about soul winning. And he said to the Lord, he said, Lord, I keep my dentist office open six days a week to make money for me. He said, I am promising you that I'm going to close my office down one day every week and spend it in soul winning. And he did. You know what happened, folks? In one year's time, he brought 200 people down the aisles of Highland Park Baptist Church that he personally had led to Christ. Their discernment, a church that labored. And they would not permit uh, sin going on in that local church. They would not bear them which are evil. 1 Peter four seventeen, The time has come when judgment must begin at the house of God. And if it begin with us, what shall the end be of them that obey not the gospel of Jesus Christ? So you see, the revival has to begin in a church like Crossroads Baptist Church. And then the world will see it and they'll say something's going on at Crossroads Baptist Church. I was talking to a preacher on the phone. The church that he was now pastoring, he'd been there three years, and he said, in all the 50 years, we have never had a church discipline situation. He said, last Sunday night, I had a church discipline situation. First time in over 50 years, the church had experienced it. I said, how did the people respond? He said, unanimously, they responded. They would not bear them which were evil. So the discernment of the church. Now, number three, I want you to notice the deficiency of the church. Notice, please, in verse four, he says, nevertheless, nevertheless, I have somewhat against thee because thou hast left thy first love. What is the first love? David said in Psalm 40 in verse eight, I delight to do thy will, O my God. Yea, thy law is within my heart. That's the first love. Again in Psalm 42, 1 and two, as the heart panteth after the water brook, so panteth my soul after thee, O God. My soul searcheth for God, yea, for the living God. That's the first love. Psalm 119, 97. Oh, how love I thy law. It is my meditation all the day. That's the first love. And Job said in Job 23 and verse 12, I have esteemed the words of his mouth more than my necessary food. I learned that principle many, many years ago. And I said, Lord, if Job said, I've esteemed the words of his mouth more than my necessary food, then I'm gonna have the principle, no Bible, no breakfast. And then again, uh, we read where the apostle Paul was so anxious. He said, not as though I'd already attained. Either were already perfect, but I press toward the mark for the prize, the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. That's the first love. I want to ask you a question. Do you remember the night you got saved? I got saved 70 years ago in the Asheville, North Carolina auditorium. And uh, the preacher said, there's a young man in here tonight who's living for popularity. And I said, who told him I was here? I had a goal in life, and that was to be president of the high school student body, Asheville High School. And so I wanted to climb that political ladder. And uh, that night he said, if you'll take that first step, you'll have no trouble with the second. So I took the first step, and that night I got saved. And I know that counselor was glad to get rid of me because I almost drowned him with my tears. I, for 15 years, had never seen Ron Comfort as a sinner. But that night, for the first time in my life, my sins flashed across my mind like a neon sign. And I felt like I was the worst sinner on planet Earth. That was a Friday night in November. On Saturday, as I walked down the streets of Asheville, I never realized that the leaves that fell from the trees were so beautiful. I never realized that the sunset was so beautiful. And as I would walk down the streets, all I could think about the day after I got saved was to preach the gospel. Somebody said, Brother Comfort, when do you think God called you to preach? I say the night I got saved. I never have thought about anything else but preaching. I came to my dad. I had sung in the nightclubs and stage and radio and TV from the ages 7 to 15. And so my brother, they had, we had moved back to Elmire, New York, and my brother came home on furlough. And he got me out on the streets winning people to Christ and uh, having street meetings And so I came to my dad and I said, Dad, God saved me and he's called me to preach. And I said, if you'll let me, I'll go to Bob Jones Academy and I'll begin to prepare to be a preacher as a sophomore in high school. He said, son, you're a fool. He said, everything we've worked for all your life is down the drain I said, Dad, that's all in the past. I don't care about that anymore. He said, you can go, but if you go, I will not send you one penny. In the three years I was in the academy, my daddy sent me zero. In the four years I was in college, one weekend my dad broke his word and sent me $5. But we had had meetings in the rescue mission. My brother and I were having a street meeting. And uh, the police came, my brother was doing the preaching and the policeman stopped us. And so right away he said, you boys can't do this. You've got to have a permit in order to do this. Across the street was the Elmira Rescue Mission. Al Shaw was the superintendent. So he saw our plight. He came over to my brother and he said, "Uh, fellas, he said, I've heard you preaching. He said, I like it. He said, I was a no good drunk and I was saved by the kind of preaching that you've been doing on the street corner. He said, whereas the police will not let you preach on the street corner, you can preach over here in the rescue mission. He said, now Billy, I want you to preach three weeks every night for three weeks. Ronnie, you do the singing. At the end of three weeks, Al Shaw called me to the platform. He said, Ronnie, he said, you're my Timothy. You're my son in the faith. He said, the offerings for the three weeks have been $150. At that time, it was $705 for a year room, board, and tuition at Bob Jones. He said, your name's on this check, and I want you to go enroll. And I remember as a sophomore in high school sitting in chapel, and seeing that older gentleman, Dr. Bob Jones Sr., traips across that platform, he paid no attention to the clock. As a matter of fact, he would always put his Bible over the clock so he couldn't see it. <laughs> and uh, that old man put some fire in my bones that's never gone out. And you know what my attitude was? I don't care about designer clothing. I don't care about automobiles and brick homes. I want to preach the gospel, live or die. I want to preach the gospel. In those days, my heart was so tender. I don't care what the preacher preached about. My hand would go up at the invitation, preacher, pray for me. I need your prayers. If he'd have said, there's a young man in here that's drinking too much Kool-Aid, man, I'd have been at the altar because I was so sensitive And when somebody come and gets saved, it's just like getting saved all over again to me. My New Testament became my constant companion. On the way to school in the morning on the bus, I was reading my Testament. When I went to study hall while the kids were goofing off, I was reading my New Testament. When I went to basketball practice, and I sat on the bench. My testament was in my hand. When I was on the floor, it was on the bench waiting for me to get back. My first Easter after I was saved, I read 28 chapters of Matthew in one sitting. I would come home from basketball practice and sit on the porch swinging and reading my Bible. And my stepmother would say, Ronnie, supper's ready. I'd say, Mom, can I finish this chapter? I'm almost through with this chapter. And you know, the only thing that was important to me was serving God in those days. But I'm honest with you. Many times I've had to say, Ron, have you left your first love? I want to ask you, have you left your first love? Now I want to give you a checklist for determining whether or not you've left your first love. Uh, Take the fly leaf of your Bible, open it up to a blank page, and I'm going to give you nine things that you can discern whether or not you've left your first love. When a person just put this checklist for leaving your first love, number one, When a person leaves his first love, there'll be a neglect of God's word. Somebody came to me this morning after the service and said, Brother Comfort, I've been neglecting the Bible. She said I was reared in a Roman Catholic church and they said that nobody could read the Bible interpreted except the priest. I was told that too growing up in the Catholic church. But when you leave your first love, you'll neglect the Bible. Number 2 there'll be little desire for sacred prayer Number 3 there'll be a growing fondness for worldly pleasures and material things Number 4 there'll be a spiritual satisfaction where you're residing. I never will forget the first time I preached at Highland Park Baptist Church. Dr. Robertson had been in the hospital. He had a vocal problem, so he hadn't preached for some time. And I preached on a Wednesday night, and as I was preaching and traipsing the platform, I looked at Dr. Robertson, and he was writing something down. And I thought, well, he's getting ready for his sermon on Sunday morning. Every time I would preach at Highland Park, Dr. Robertson would take notes on everything I said. And uh, you know, when he had an evangelist in, he would say this. He'd say, listen, I'm having this evangelist in, but I'll let you in on a secret. I'm not only having him for your benefit, I'm having it for my benefit too. I need this. And God help us when we get to the place. And you college students beware. When you go to chapel and you think I've heard it all, then you've left your first love. Spiritual satisfaction with the plateau on which you're residing. Number five, there'll be petty excuses for neglecting God's house. Petty excuses For neglecting God's house. Number six. There'll be a tendency to be discontent and fault finding. Number seven. There'll be a decreasing anxiety for soul winning. You know... Something's bothered me through the years. In these 1,600 meetings that I've had through the years, uh, I go, go out sometimes in the vestibule when I finish my invitation. And you know, in soul winning churches, Brother Shoemaker, I'll see men who are deacons and ushers sitting, uh, standing back there talking to each other about fishing or about sports or about anything and the invitations going on. And it would seem to me like they would be concerned about people who are dying and going to hell, but they have a decreasing anxiety for the salvation of souls. Number eight, there'll be an insensitivity to sin. I want to ask you, does it bother you as much When you hear somebody use God's name in vain, somebody says, well, it wasn't a bad movie. They only used God's name in vain three or four times. Get a brain. Get a brain. Phil Shuler said, the first time I saw the cigar-smoking liver He said, it made me irate. He said, I put my fingers to my mouth and spit her and hit her dead center in the forehead. He said, the next time I saw it, it didn't bother me as badly. And he said, finally, I'm afraid I got to the place where it didn't bother me at all. Insensitivity to sin. And number nine, There'll be a casual attitude about spiritual things. Now, I notice this all the time. When I watch a sports channel, I see the men dressed immaculately. And then I, on occasion, I've gone over to the religious channel and I've watched a preacher who looks like he's a reject from a rescue mission Now, those men in the sports channel, they're ambassadors for athletics. I'm an ambassador for Jesus Christ. And ladies and gentlemen, it's a shame when we have a casual attitude uh, toward spiritual things. Someone said, well, it's only church and it doesn't matter if I'm 15 minutes late. The average Christian, if he treated his employer like he treats the things of God, he wouldn't work very long. A casual attitude towards spiritual things. Now, let me say this, folks. I'm not chiding you for leaving your first love. I've done that. But here's where the problem comes. Number four, I want you to notice the dilemma of the church. Revelation chapter two and verse five. Remember therefore from whence thou art fallen and repent and do the first works or else I will come unto thee quickly and will remove the candlesticks except thou repent. I remember preaching in Anderson, Indiana at that time. It was my home church starting a meeting. I was preaching along this line. And when I gave the invitation, a teenage girl came forward and she was weeping. They started to close the service. She said, I'm going to stay here until God renews the joy of my salvation. So she stayed there for an hour and a half. And she got up and she said, praise God. He's restored the joy of my salvation and I've gotten back to my first love. Now that's the dilemma. He says, repent or else I will remove the candlestick. What does that mean? You know, when John wrote the book of the Revelation, uh, this was... Ephesus was one of the main cities in the Roman Empire and they had that uh, temple that was one of the seven wonders of the world. You know what Ephesus is today? That temple is a stagnant pond for frogs. The city is in ruins. And let me say, ladies and gentlemen, whether or not, God removes the candlestick is going to be determined by whether or not we get back to our first love. I remember the first time that we went to the mission field in 1977, Kenya, Africa. Eddie Weaver was a wonderful missionary. He had started dozens of fundamental Baptist churches, but Eddie Weaver got into sin. Well, he got right. He he got right with his churches in Kenya, got right with his church in eastern Pennsylvania, and became a bus driver and a soul winner, even though God had put him on the shelf for a period of time. And I remember on the last night of our meeting, people came to the platform, and I was signing Bibles, and I looked at Eddie standing at the side, He was waiting until everybody had finished and then he came to me and he wrapped his arms around my neck with tears coming down his face and he said, Brother Ron, keep your eyes on Jesus Christ. There are hundreds of people watching you and if you fail, so the cause of Christ will fail. Keep your eyes on Jesus Christ. He said that with tears in his eyes. And I know what Eddie Weaver was thinking. He was thinking, I can't be a missionary anymore. I've disqualified myself and God has put me on the shelf. I've said this so many times. The important thing is not how I started. The important thing is how I end. And I want to say I'm not a good Christian. My wife is much better Christian than I am. She challenges me in so many ways. But I want to say, Dr. Shoemaker, the desire of my heart is to be used of God. And what a tragedy it would be if I would get up in the morning and look in the mirror and the Holy Spirit say, it's over, it's over. I'm removing the candlestick. What about you? Do you need to get back to your first love tonight? Let's bow our heads in prayer. As the pianist plays tonight, have thine own way, Lord. Has God spoken to your heart? Do you need to get back to your first love? If you do, when we stand to sing, why don't you come and just talk to the Lord about whatever he's spoken to you about. Father, this is a somber message tonight. We realize that a desirable church can become a deficient church. Here was a church that was rigid in precept, but they were routine in performance. They had the right doctrine, but the wrong devotion. And Lord, I pray that the time will never come when you remove the candlestick from Crossroads Baptist Church. Help us to realize that the future of this country does not depend upon who's in the White House or who's in the Congress, but it depends on whether or not we who are Christians get back to our first love. Help us, dear God, to just obey you. In Jesus' name,